Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Wouldn't you agree that really every major religion has a simple framework to it? It has a problem, it has an answer, and it has a result. Every major religion shares these things in common, a problem, an answer. The answer is really the means to rectify and remedy the problem. But then there's a result. There's a payoff that's promised in every major religion, what you get if you can successfully rectify the problem. So the problem really is regardless of what we might try to say or how we might try to convince ourselves, we deal with the harsh reality of inconsequentiality. We try to hide from the reality that we know is very true about us that we're insignificant. We, we live the whole of our lives trying to convince ourselves and others that we really matter. In addition to our inconsequentiality, though, we're slapped by our own brokenness. We know that the reason we're insignificant is because of a deficiency. We're deficient. We're broken. Every major religion will agree with this, that people are deficient. They're less than optimal. We're in a fallen state in some form. Now, now, not all religions will refer to that as being sinful, but all are motivated by what we lack, motivated really by our brokenness. So that's the problem within every major religion, but then the means, the answer, what it is that you and I must do to cure our brokenness, to fill what's lacking, and to remedy, remedy our feelings of insignificance that eat at us. And many major religions will present different things. However, they will share this in common, that those things, whatever they may be, will be what you must do to fix this. What you are trained and taught, you have to take responsibility for yourself to make happen, to fix it yourself. If you're in modern Judaism, you must obey the Jewish law and customs. If you're in Islam, a Muslim must practice the five pillars of Islam successfully. In Hinduism, the individual must purify himself from evil in life after life after life. In Buddhism, you must renounce self in order to reach nirvana. In paganism, you must appease gods and spirits in order to be rewarded. Excuse me, rewarded. In Scientology, you must pay to reach different levels or tiers of thinking and teaching. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you must take the second chance that Jesus provides for you to now earn and prove their saving faith through their good works. In Mormonism, you must have good works to pair with God's grace in order to receive heaven and potentially be exalted, made into a deity yourself. You see, all of them have in common the problem, and even they have in common the means that there's something that you must do, and then the result. If you pull out Judeo-Christianity and and Judeo-Christian religions from the result, then what you're promising to faithful practitioners of these religions, that, that they become maybe a part of the God force that exists ethereally in the world, or, or maybe they reach the highest form amongst creations, or, or for some they're promised virgins for their sexual passions. For others, they'll receive ultimate autonomy as a deity if they're a faithful practitioner. Isn't it bizarre that when you start thinking about it, that what's promised is a distorted fulfillment of things that the religions themselves condemn, like gross sexual appetites or pride or desire for control or autonomy and self-sovereignty. Judeo-Christian message, though, will address things beneath those desires where you're promised things like joy and peace and love and belonging and sonship as you forever dwell with God now as a family and member of God. You see, every major religion shares in common simple framework. There's a problem, there's an answer, and then there's a promised result. And in every single one of the religions we've just mentioned, the burden rests on human beings to do something, to achieve something, to comply to something in order for them to earn heaven or nirvana, salvation or happiness, moksha or oneness with Brahma. Whatever salvation looks like or is called, whatever it's represented as, you've got to do something in order to make yourself worthy to receive it. 
Whereas Christianity is the only religion where the offer and the burden for accomplishing salvation rests solely on God himself. And man can do nothing to earn or deserve salvation. So hear me say this. The gospel of grace, it then is offensive to the religious person because you have to admit that you cannot earn God's favor by your own merits. And it is offensive to the irreligious, the non-religious person, because it tells them that they need God's favor and can turn alone to God to find it. You see, Christianity alone is not a merit-based system. It's so very unique. And this is why Paul is writing this letter. This is why Paul has such urgency and why we as well must be so very vigilant to keep the gospel of grace that we believe and that we preach to others from becoming like every other religious works-based endeavor to earn and deserve your right standing with God or place inside of his family. Remember, Paul is, is... Right now, his his work in teaching the gospel of grace in the region of Galatia, it's being undermined, and it's under threat of completely being undone. There's a group of false teachers that have come into this region, this territory, known as the Judaizers, who have infiltrated the churches in the region of Galatia, saying that what you need is, yes, the grace of Jesus, and you also need to uphold Jewish laws and customs and dietary restrictions and holy days and be circumcised if you truly want to please God. And so what Paul does is he begins to reiterate the gospel of grace to the Galatians. And by way of reminder, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. Look in your Bible at verse 4 where he reminds them that Christ Jesus, he's the one who gave himself for our sins. He tells you that Jesus' position in our relationship is not a transactional one where he received something from us, that Jesus received our merit, received our effort, received our good works. No, it says that Jesus came giving. He gave, and what he gave was his own life, it says, for us. Remember the Greek word that's used there, it communicates, he he gave it for us, he gave it on behalf of our sins. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice to atone for my sin. And if you think about it, if Jesus successfully did that, here's an if-then statement, if he successfully did that, then my sin has been done away with because it's been paid for in totality by Jesus. So Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel, just Jesus alone equals the good news of salvation of my rescue. And that means that anyone who comes along to tell me what I have to do to atone for my sins or be made acceptable to God again, united with him, they are teaching, Paul is saying, a false gospel, saying that what Christ did is not sufficient. As we agreed last week, looking at just utilizing the words of Dallas Willard, where he had said, and I'll loosely paraphrase it, he said that God is not opposed to effort, but he does stand in opposition to earning because grace stands in opposition to earning. Because a gift of grace is is not the payoff of what I've earned. It's something God freely gives to us. It's his unmerited favor. And so Paul tells them, verse 4, he says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us or rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. My friends, if Jesus merely came and lived as an example, he'd crush you. But no, remember that he came as a substitute and a savior to rescue you, and it tells you why. Why did he do it? It says, not because of things that I have done. He did this, verse 4, according to his own will. Do you hear that it's sheer grace? It's because this is what was in the heart of God. This is what he desired. This was his will to do it. And in doing so, just out of sheer grace, then he alone receives all of the glory forever and ever and ever. But for Paul, people have come in now preaching another gospel, he says in verse 6. Another gospel, verse 7, he says, which is really not another gospel. The idea is that there's really no good news outside of the message that Jesus has done everything that needed to be done. And if they come saying, well, this is a slightly different variation where it's Jesus plus something, then he says what they've done is perverted it and it's no longer a gospel at all. In fact, in verse 7, when he says they've perverted it, he's talking about how they've, they've muddled together the law with grace. 
And what's left then is no room for Jesus as Savior who atones for everything. The word pervert there, it's actually reversed. They've reversed the gospel. Think of this. They have reversed its life-giving impact in these people really by reversing its order. There is an order to the gospel of Jesus. It's that he loves us and accepts us and that we then respond to him. To reverse that is to turn Christianity into every other religion. To reverse it is to say that we come to God to give something to him. And if what we give is sufficient, then he responds and loves us. Do you see the reversal? Every religion is represented that way. You do something to earn your place and favor. And if you do, God responds to you. That's the reversal of the gospel, though. The gospel tells me that God accepts me and loves me and has given himself for me. I respond to that. That is the gospel. You see, to reverse it leaves no room for Jesus, his perfect life and sacrifice. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to them here when he says, I marvel that you have left him so soon. You didn't just leave a teaching or a doctrine or a theory. You left Jesus. There's a sting in those words we're meant to feel that you've turned away so soon from him. Now, why have they turned away from him? Why, why would they go any other direction in order to try to work for his favor? Well, they've turned away from Jesus, a person. They've turned to now a cold, harsh, broken system, lifeless system called the law to try to earn their own place, their own piece of God's favor. My friends, we will never, ever graduate from our deep need of hearing the gospel because we will never graduate from our deep need for the gospel, for grace. And like the Galatians, some of us might have external pressures on us who are trying to apply this same kind of pressure that, yes, believe in Jesus, but also do these things. But most of us, the truth is, we have a good little legalist already living inside of us, spinning that narrative that we have to preach the gospel against. Now, take your mind back to the text, because in Paul's day, the church was in a really vulnerable infant state. Some scholars say that this was written as early as the late 40s or early 50s AD. So think about this. This is so short, so quick after Jesus has died and been buried and risen from the dead and birthed the church with the movement at Pentecost. And the era we're looking at in our passage of Scripture this morning is when the church is first beginning to consider what it looks like for non-Jews to enter into their ranks as followers of Jesus of the sect called the Christians, the little Christ. You see, all the other apostles, they had remained in Jerusalem, so their interaction with people were, we are Jews who now are seeing new converts who are also Jews. But now for the first time, they're having to consider practically what it will look like to have non-Jewish converts join the movement that Jesus has started. And Paul will launch into a section of this letter where he shares his own story and testimony of coming to faith in Jesus and him beginning to serve Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is Paul's testimony. But I want to tell you why it's important for him to take up this, this amount of precious real estate of the text of this letter to do so, to share his testimony. Why is it important? Why does he share it? Well, because in sharing his testimony, it will function as a defense and a display of the gospel of grace that he's defending. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at those two things together, one after another. First, that as we view this through three different lenses, the first one is that Paul's testimony is a defense of the gospel of grace. But the second thing is that Paul's testimony is a display of the gospel of grace. And then I want to talk, we'll close by talking about your life and mine and how our lives are a defense and a display of that gospel of grace too. And I'll forewarn you, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this first one, uh, discussing Paul's testimony as a defense of the gospel of grace. So that is the first thing, Paul's testimony, the defense of the gospel of grace. Paul will make it clear here that he did not craft his message of the gospel to please men, verse 10. 
that he did not craft his message of the gospel by human reasoning, verse 12. He didn't just sit back as someone who's persecuting the church and hell-bent on destroying it, and after lots of thought decided, maybe I have this wrong and had a course correction. That's not how it happened at all. Nor did he craft his message after hearing the apostles in Jerusalem share the gospel. Instead, the gospel that he taught was received by revelation, and when he finally does stand before the apostles, it was affirmed by them. Remember, Paul's writing this because people are coming into this region questioning if Paul's message was incomplete and if it should be trusted at all. The Judaizers were insulting that Paul received his message from the apostles and the church in Jerusalem and that he had somehow butchered it. He had butchered their message by failing to give the full message, the full message that you have to believe in in Jesus by faith to receive grace and you have to do something. You have to uphold the Jewish laws and customs in order to earn God's grace and favor. So Paul is about to write about his conversion to combat the slanderous division created by these false teachers. And he's going to make clear that he too is a true apostle, enlightened and commissioned by Jesus himself, and that his gospel was received from Jesus and then affirmed by the other apostles in Jerusalem. So read his response to those false accusations with me, beginning in verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Other translations will say it this way. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Verse 11, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through revelation of Jesus Christ. Your mind right now should go back, if you know the Bible and you're familiar with the New Testament, to the book of Acts chapter 9, where Paul, or as he was formerly known, Saul of Tarsus, is on the war path to hunt down Jesus' followers who were claiming that Jesus was alive again after death and in being alive had proven himself to be the long-awaited promised Messiah. And he's on a roadway towards Damascus hunting down Jesus' earliest followers to shut them up. And if need be, even put them to death. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, here's how that little story goes. It says, as Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and, and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembled and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. I love the two questions that Saul asks along the road. It's two questions I think that anyone who's had an encounter with Jesus asks. It becomes kind of their life pursuit. Who are you? That's what I want to know. I want to know you. And then I want to know, what do you want me to do? That's our reaction to grace is, Jesus, I want to know you. If you're loving me and giving yourself for me, I want to know you. And I want to know what you'd like for me to do. How would you use my life? It was seemingly in this moment in Saul's life that he has this encounter with a risen Jesus and that all that he had previously learned through a lifetime of study in the Hebrew scriptures had the light of Christ shined on them, leading him to see that it was all always pointing ahead to Jesus. And it shifts his mind completely. There's a conversion moment where everything is different from here on out. You know, back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Just push pause for a second. 
Paul's telling them, I did not go to sit at the feet of Peter or the rest of the gang to learn from them. Instead, what Paul tells them, here's what I did. I went to the Gentiles and I began preaching the gospel to them. Months will turn into years. You read about it in the book of Acts. Jews in the region have their frustration all of a sudden with Paul's message turned into a murder plot. And so Paul will flee in in the middle of the night, according to Acts chapter 9, and will end up going, he says, verse 18, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to see Peter. And I remained with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing, track this, they were hearing only that he who formerly had persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Please notice it does not say here, that they heard that I was preaching the gospel, but that it was a watered-down partial message of the gospel. And because of that, they were greatly concerned for me and for those that I was misleading. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He reminds them that many people were hearing about the one who persecuted the church is now heralding the gospel, and they rejoiced and gave thanks for God or to God for the transformation that was happening in the lives of people in these cities all throughout the Gentile lands through this guy Paul's ministry. They're giving thanks for how God was using him and his message to transform those communities. Okay, now track with me. Don't nod off right now and don't check out. Because what Paul describes next was a massive, pivotal moment for the church. Because the question for the first century followers of Jesus that they're considering in this moment was not if the gospel was for Jews and for non-Jews. The question, however, was, do the non-Jews need to become good Jews to receive the gospel? The idea is, sure, the gospel was for them too, but do they need to become a cultural Jew when they repent and receive Jesus Christ and become like the rest of us and what our cultural roots look like? So chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. This is recorded for you in Acts 15. And I went up by revelation, he felt compelled by Jesus to go, and communicated to them that the gospel which I preached amongst the Gentiles, okay, pause there, I communicated to them the gospel that I was preaching. Notice that Paul wasn't there to learn from them, he went there to tell them, this is my gospel message. This is what I'm preaching amongst the Gentiles, so that they will now see how the Holy Spirit is already affirming his message of sheer grace by powerfully moving in the lives of these people. That he's transforming, the Holy Spirit is is transforming communities. It's the affirmation of Paul's message because lives are being changed as the gospel of Jesus goes forward into the Gentile world without the requirement that these non-Jews become Jew in culture and custom. So here's what he says, but I went to them privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, Titus is a pastor in Crete, who was with me being a Greek, notice this, Yet not even Titus, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly had brought something in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But for those who seem to be something... He's talking about the big important people, the apostles in Jerusalem, the leaders of that church who appeared to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Other translations read, they added nothing to my gospel. Again, another translation is he's describing the scene. I shared my gospel, their response to me, they had nothing to add to my message. Another translation still, they had nothing to add to my gospel message, nor did they impose any new requirements on me. Are you seeing what's happening here? 
On the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised and the non-Jew had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, the Jews in Jerusalem, also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. This is the church affirming that Paul and Peter are really equals, that God has entrusted an important ministry to each of them. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. That's important. That we should go to the Gentiles and they would continue to go to the circumcised, to the Jews. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. They gave us the right hand of fellowship. Paul is saying, we got the approval and endorsement of the apostles in Jerusalem, meaning that those who were adding to his message, the Judaizers who were saying, he's got it wrong because there's so much more that you have to do, that they did not receive the right hand of fellowship. They did not receive approval or, or, or have their endorsement. He's saying that this false gospel lost. It was slapped down in that moment. Okay, now take a deep breath. You know, I've seen a lot of cheesy Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers in my lifetime. And I'm yet to see one with Galatians 2, chap- or chapter 2, verse 3 on it. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But do you actually catch what a big deal this is? I mean, I've never had someone tell me, that's my life first. That one right there. But do you realize the freedom that it guarantees? Do you realize that the gospel was protected in this moment, that it's sheer grace, and that the Christian message in this moment was protected from becoming like every other religion around it? Do you realize the significance, the magnitude, the impact for my life personally as someone who is not born into a Jewish household, what this means for me of freedom in Christ? We could refer to this as a case study. Titus is patient zero. He's a figurehead in a sense. What happens to him as a non-Gent or as a non-Jew, a Gentile follower of Jesus, will shape what's expected and required of the rest of us Gentile converts who come after him. Because the truth is, we are Judeo-Christians. We embrace a view that we are completed Jews in a sense, who everything that they anticipated we believe was fulfilled in Jesus. So we view ourselves as Judeo-Christians. This isn't about whether or not this guy Titus will have to go through a painful surgical procedure done to him in order to fit into this new tribe called the Christians. This is really about whether or not the gospel operates across cultural barriers or if it must exist solely in one cultural context. This is about whether or not the gospel is a message that exclusively is about grace and that you can expect the favor of God on the basis only of Christ earning it for you and you not having to do anything yourself. And Titus, it says, was not compelled to be circumcised. And then the crowd applauded. Because we understand that there actually is significance here. Exhibit A, our case study, would not need to do anything to be accepted by God or accepted as a full-fledged member embraced by the church. You see, the gospel in first century church emerged in this moment on the other side of an attack, on the other side of an enemy's way to try to thwart the mission and message of Jesus. And we're left with confidence because of that, that you are accepted solely because of Jesus' righteousness, that you are embraced exclusively because of his grace, and that you are loved and received by God, not of works or merit or earning at all, but because of his sheer will, because it was in his heart to do so. Remember, that's the gospel of grace. You see, Paul seemed to enter this meeting with an urgency and a deep concern. Some even call it a fear. You see it in in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Another translation says, I wanted to make sure that, that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. Paul was not concerned that the validity of the gospel of grace was going to be overturned in this moment. His concern was that his credibility with these churches he was planting might be lost if the church in Jerusalem would not publicly condemn the Judaizers, which would leave the faith of those early converts to be undermined or taken completely by a false, perverted gospel. 
It's been reversed completely. But his fears in this moment are silenced. His concerns have been lifted as the true gospel of justification by faith alone without earning God's grace or favor through the works of the law. That message was upheld. And the perversion, the reversal that, that had a teaching that you had something that you had to do to earn the favor of God. Remember, not God loving you and you responding, but me doing something to love and prove myself to God and him reacting to that. It was slapped down and rejected in that meeting, in that moment in church history, an important moment. Now, this was not a decision to rid the church of the moral law. It was, however, clarifying that the purpose of the law, as you will find later in Galatians chapter 2, is that no flesh is justified by the keeping of the law. And it was a decision, as boring as this may sound to you, it's something I was so excited, but I don't have the time to go into it today, so we'll wait for chapter three. But it was also a decision not to saddle the church with expectations of the ceremonial laws or what the Hebrew scriptures refer to as the clean laws, where we don't have to follow those things that have restrictions on uh, my hair, on my beard, on, on the fabric blend of the clothing that I wear or what I touch and eat and no bacon and all of those things. Again, something that might sound boring to you, but I'm very excited to talk to you about because the implications are massive and really beautiful for the way that it will shape the future culture of the church throughout the ages. But we'll move on from here. Luther said it this way about the importance of this meeting that Paul's pen just led us into. Luther said, Paul did not go to Jerusalem to be instructed or confirmed in his gospel by the other apostles. He went to Jerusalem in order to preserve the true gospel for the Galatian churches and for all the churches of the Gentiles. That means even for us. So Paul's testimony here is first, and I told you that's the one that we'd spend the most time on. It's a defense of the gospel of grace. That's the first thing he uses it for. But here's the second, is that Paul uses his testimony here also as a display of the gospel of grace. Okay, now let's shift gears from just, let's look back at the story through a lens of how does this impact us historically, the history of the church leading to us. No, 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 just think of Paul here. And the display that his testimony gives of the gospel of grace. You see, Paul's testimony doesn't only defend the authority that he has as an apostle or defend the gospel's authority as being grace only that he preached. His testimony provides a display and illustration of the transforming power of God's grace. I mean, if it was possible for any person alive on planet Earth, probably at any time in human history, to earn the favor of God through religious effort, Paul was probably our guy. Humanity would have pushed him to the front of the line and said, he's our man. If, you know, if it's not him, if he can't win it, no one can. That's what we'd be saying. In fact, Paul said this about himself in Philippians 3. He said, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. If we had a shot at someone earning the favor of God, Paul, Paul, he's our man. If he can't do it, none of us can. But what Paul says here is that he begins to describe that he found favor with God sheerly by grace. In verse 15, he says, when it pleased God, he called me by his grace. Paul is clear that his salvation was unearned and undeserved, that God extended grace to him when and because it pleased God to do so. Verse 15, when it pleased God, he did this. You know, for our family, yesterday began the, the spring season of baseball and softball, which is a lot of fun around our house. I love it. It's one of my favorite things with my kids is, is getting to see them play or us playing catch or, you know, it, it's baseball season, doing this together. My other favorite thing is I love going to the beach together. I love that my two oldest are starting to surf and that we can paddle around together. And, and the idea for me or the experience of catching, playing catch with a ball back and forth or catching a wave together with my kids, are it's so, so fun, so sweet. But those two things are very different. We catch things at both. But to catch a ball is one experience, but very separate from the idea of catching a wave. Like, it really is funny when you think about it. I love to surf, but the idea that I'm communicating to people that I catch the wave. No, I catch a ball in my mitt, and then I hold it in my possession, right? And then I choose to do with it what I will. But a wave is not that way. Last weekend, I had been uh, kind of bummed out. I hadn't been in the water in like three weeks. And so I went to the coast, and waves were breaking, but it was way offshore. And I couldn't really tell how big they were because it was so far out and decided, oh, I'll just 
paddle out and got out after 15 minutes of really struggling to get out to realize it was like double overhead and then did the paddle of shame where you just wait in between sets and paddle as fast as you can back to shore because I know something about a wave. I don't catch it in my glove and then harness its power and say, you do what I want you to do. A wave, if I catch a wave, the truth is the wave catches me. It's going to push and thrust me in the direction it wants me to go. Now, I might have a say in it if I have any decent talent to be able to maneuver or move the way that I want. But the, the fact of the matter is the wave is pushing me. It's caught me. Even that's why you paddle into position. That's why you shift your weight. That's why you do all the things that you do so that you feel the inertia of the wave catching you and driving you forward. Do you hear me? This is what grace is. Grace is not something you catch like a ball. What he says here is, but when it pleased God, God intervened in his life and moved in his life, and he radically had a transformation because the grace of God came like a wave that he didn't catch that caught him and began to drive, drive him forward into a whole new life and experience. This is what someone experiences when they encounter the grace of God. They neither catch it, nor are they left unmoved by it. No, grace catches them and becomes the life force that drives them forward from the place and the person that they were and drives them into a whole nother reality. You see, Paul was in the middle of this zealous attack, a full force attack on those who are claiming that Jesus was alive. He, he's arrested Christians. He's had them beaten, even stoned to death in the streets. Some refer to him as a terrorist. The Bible itself refers to him as a wild animal. We read in the book of Acts chapter 8 that Saul wreaked havoc on the church. And one writer I, I read, a theologian, he, he said that that word was used, that he wreaked havoc, that it was used to describe members of the animal kingdom like a wild boar who would sink its tusks and teeth into its prey and thrash about. That that was heaven's view of who this guy was. Out of control, raging. But look at the amazing transformation that takes place in this life because of his encounter with being caught by the beauty and the, the, the power of the gospel of transforming grace. He goes from the persecutor of the church to now the planter of churches and the protector of the church. When you think about it, the first two major issues that the church will face in its history is the persecution that he leads against it. But then the second issue will be that he will need to stand as the protector of the churches that he's planted. This man has had a radical transformation where everything in his life has been turned upside down because he had an encounter with Jesus. The trajectory of his life had a whole new aim, but please hear me, even his heart, not just his actions, it was his affections that were also reshaped by grace's intrusion from a vengeful, vindictive, hard man to a driven, yes, a driven, but a gracious man that we find in Paul. You see, this isn't just a defense of the gospel he gives here. This is a display of what grace does in someone's life. That's what he's giving us. A display for us to look at, an illustration of the power of the gospel of grace at work in someone's life. You see, in Paul's life, before encountering a risen Jesus, his issue was not being caused so much by failing to live in obedience to God, his great error was caused by his reliance upon that obedience to God to find and secure favor with God. But all of that changed when grace crashed into his life along that old Roman road. As author Timothy Keller wrote, he said, no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. Paul was deeply religious, but he needed the gospel. Paul was deeply flawed, yet he could be reached by the power of the gospel. As C.S. Lewis famously said, Christianity must be from God, for who else could have thought it up? Oh, the unique beauty of the grace of God being freely dispensed to sinful man. It's beautiful. Okay, now the third and final thing. See, Paul's testimony, it served as a defense here of the gospel of grace. It also served as a display of the gospel of grace. But can I tell you, your life, your life, this is the third thing, your life is a defense and display of the gospel of grace. And this is where we land with three simple thoughts of application for you. And the first is this. It is so very important that the message we preach to ourselves is the gospel of grace. 
that the message we preach to ourselves is clearly the gospel of grace and not a reversal of the gospel, that you must do something first for God to respond in love and favor. You see, there's a grave danger that many of us churchy people face. It's that we can live out our life and faith and have it only be really cultural Christianity and not the genuine Christian faith. Cultural Christianity is the broken denomination of moralism. It's a works-based religious system where God grades on the curve. The gospel is so very different from that, though. The gospel tells you, as we often say here, that you are far worse than you'd imagined, that, that you're broken beyond hope of repairing yourself, and that you are simultaneously far more loved than you had ever hoped or dreamed. Paul would write it this way to the church in Ephesus. He'd say, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. My friends, we are not called into a lifestyle of sin management. We are rescued by relentless grace. We have to be so careful that the message we preach to ourselves is a message of grace, the gospel of grace which means that when you fail, you remember that Jesus lifts the heads of them who stumble. That when you rebel, you remember that Jesus welcomes the prodigal. That when you're weary, you remember that Jesus invites you to come and to find rest. That when you lust or, or jealous or envious or longing for something that isn't yours, remember that Jesus provides a love that's secure. Or when you're hard-hearted, you remember that Jesus says, those who come to him will never be cast out by him. Preach the gospel of grace to yourself. Each time you find yourself hanging your head in shame, preach it to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Each time that you're, you're putting yourself on a spiritual timeout because of your poor decisions or bad behavior, no, preach the gospel of grace to yourself in that moment. And each time that you find yourself saying, I'll try harder and promising, I'll work harder, I'll do better. Preach the gospel of grace to yourself. Remember that God and his grace is not opposed to effort, but it is standing in opposition to earning graces. Oh, it's so important that the message that we preach to ourselves is the gospel of grace. But the second thing, you might guess it, is that it's also equally important then that the message we preach to others in the world around us is the gospel of grace. We are not on a mission as a church or as individuals to make moral men. We're not on a mission to make good conservatives or churchy folk who adhere to our cultural standards. We are on a mission to introduce a broken and hurting world to the grace of God found in his son, Jesus, that is freely given to them. I had someone at my house this week to repair a cracked windshield. This lady, very kind lady, she had been at my house, uh, unfortunately, just a few months before. And so we're getting to know each other a bit. And the first time she'd come, she asked me, she said, what do you do for a living? And I think I've told you before, it always leaves me in the valley of decision because as soon as I, with typically with a lot of people in our cultural moment, uh, when I tell them what I do, I'm a pastor of a church, I'm recategorized in a different thing. And typically I can tell they're thinking through how many times have I sworn in front of this person. <laughs> and, and then I can tell that they're thinking through also, what do I know already about? I got that bewildered look when I answered and said, I pastor a church here in the community. And so I laughed out loud and said, I can tell by your expression, you have some thoughts on this. <laughs> and then I said, why don't you, while you're working, you tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I might not believe in him either. And then this lady began to share her experiences with harsh religious people growing up and how that impacted her childhood and, and shaped her whole worldview and, and shaped her, her image for sure of who God was and God, what God wanted from her because she felt turned away by those people. She was left always feeling like an outsider who couldn't belong amongst them. And so she had written the whole thing off that this is who God is and I don't want to part in, in any of that. And so then I began to share with her what I believe the gospel is, that it's the great equalizer, presenting that all of humanity is the same, broken and because of our sin in need of rescue, that all of us are broken and sinful enough that Jesus had to die and yet simultaneously loved enough that Jesus was willing to die for us. That's our gospel message. And I told her it's terribly offensive to me because it tells me, even if I think I'm a righteous person, just how wretched I am. 
And it tells me also then when I realize what a wretched person I am, that I'm so very loved by God and could not even bother to try to earn his favor. Do you understand the invitation that it gives to us? But then what I did is the third thing I'm encouraging you to do. Not just to remember it's important that you preach the gospel of grace to yourself and that you're preaching it to others, but then I began to do what I'm encouraging you to do. And the third thing is that you'd share your story of encountering the grace of God with people around you who need that grace. You share your story of how grace has impacted you. Because really, our lives are meant to be a defense and a display of the gospel of grace. And so with this woman, I started to share in my own life what this has looked like in encountering grace is that I wasn't some some person who like, you know, I was in a gang and then I did prison time or I killed somebody like Moses or David or Paul. Nor was I so markably good that, that I held the admiration of others like Paul said about himself. No, I was just a person who had a really empty religious experience who grew up as a kid going to church, a church kid, a pastor's kid, in fact, who viewed the whole thing as a harsh religious system that was cold and left me perpetually feeling like a failure and an outsider. In my mind, I had built up a house on stilts that looked beautiful. That's the house and the family of God that belong inside of there. But I had no way to get to the front door. It was built on stilts. It was way out of my reach. And so I started to think that my merit would build a way for me to reach an entrance point, that God's mercy towards me would be based on, built on that merit, like steps or rungs in a ladder, and that that was what my imagery was. And at some point, I just, I got tired of feeling like a failure, so I just quit trying. Because what an empty system, and how how exhausting, how crushing, and if Jesus is just that, if he's only an example, it is crushing. But then I heard someone teach on grace. I remember hearing them read from Ephesians chapter 2. It's hard to argue with someone's opinion when they just read it from Scripture, that by grace you're saved through faith. That not of yourself, it's this free gift that God gives, lest you'd have a single reason to boast. I said, this is nuts. This can't be right. There's a typo in here. I I know the thing. I've lived the system. This is not how it works for us. I went back and reread the Gospels, and what I found in Jesus was something I didn't expect to find. I found that grace all over every page. What I found in Jesus was what I meant to expect in God himself. Because remember, he's the expression of the Father, the express image of the Father. They're cut from the same mold. Everything I know about Jesus, I learn about Jesus, is showing me who God is and what I can expect from him as well. It so rattled my view of things that it was like someone came and kicked the stilts out from under the house so it dropped down to eye level and I saw that I could belong on the inside. You see, I realized it wouldn't be built on my merit that I'd get there. It would simply be based on his mercy that he would come to me and that that's exactly what Christ did. You see, Christianity is unlike any other religion because all the other ones just give you a list of requirements of what you need to do to reach God or attain enlightenment. But Christianity is essentially news. It's gospel good news that must simply be believed, not requirement or expectation that you must fulfill. You see, for me, I told her in my life, fear and shame were awful motivators. They're terribly powerful, but they are terrible motivators. But the first time I found for me in my life that my motivation was love, and that that was a far more powerful motivator, it was that I was loved without merit or measure. And and sure, that reshaped then the trajectory of my life and my testimony like it did for Paul. But it did that because he, what he for, began to do first, he, he did the impossible work of transforming my heart and reshaping my life from the inside out. I went from this anger, angry, bitter, unforgiving teenager with a broken relationship with my own family to God bringing reconciliation in our home between my relationship uh, with my parents, with my dad specifically. It was from a young person full of self-centeredness who wanted to see what the world could give him to all of a sudden having a desire to serve other people from a drive that I had when my parents would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I just said, I want to be rich. And like, that's not a job. <laughs> but we grew up on not much. Like we, we ate lots of food that came from the food bank. And so for me, it was, it was, I wanted the security that money, I believed, could give me. 
And so that was to, to quell an insecurity. And so my drive was, I want to find a way towards financial security. But what I found is a freedom from that to where I have a security that's not rooted in money. You see, this is the transforming work of grace in a person's life, in each of our lives. Remember, please, that your life is a defense and display of the gospel of grace. If that's true, share your story of encountering grace with people around you who are in need of grace. And share it with confidence, because you're the only expert on you. Until your spouse corrects you on some unnecessary detail that you got wrong in your story and And then you'll get back on track and it'll be okay. No, you're the only expert on you. You know your experience and you know what what Christ has done in your life. And you know that the grace of God is never without impact. And that grace is what the world needs for its brokenness. It's a great thing for you to discuss in your home groups this week. To discuss how has grace transformed my life personally? Did me becoming a Christian mean that I felt like I added a system to my life that's a crushing weight and pressure? If so, maybe you're missing the boat. Maybe maybe you need to hear not that you're an outsider, but that you're still being welcomed in. That the only safe place for the prodigal son in the story was not just when he started walking back to his dad, but once his dad's voice was louder than his own. Because he was still rehearsing it, that here's what I'm going to do, dad. I'm going to earn my place and position back with you. And then the father says, it's not going to be this way. This is my son. And he clothes him, he wraps him in a garment. Maybe you'd say it softened and changed my heart. That's what transforming grace did for me. Maybe you'd say it restored my marriage or my joy or my purpose, that it healed an insecurity and brokenness that I I was otherwise overshadowed by, that it freed me from the pressure of this broken world system. My friends, the grace of God has transforming power at work in our lives, and we need to be willing to say it and share it. You see, God's love for us is not because we've proved ourselves to be useful to Him. He loves us simply because of who He is, not who we are, not what we've done, not even what we can do for Him. This then, if that's true, is the only kind of love that can find, we can find deep security in because it's not a love that we can lose. Because it's never a love that we'll lose. Because it's a love that's freely given. Because we received it by grace, by the love of God. We received it by grace. And we continue to receive it because of grace. And we will forever enjoy it by the sheer means of grace. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.